church. Um, so yeah, as Josh mentioned, my name is Austin, and uh, one of the ministers here at, at Flourishing Grace. And I'm just I'm super excited, super honored uh, to, to bring this message to you this morning. Um, and as I was preparing, um, I kept being reminded of this uh, story that, that I recently read. And so I don't know if you're like a like a book person or not. If you're not a reader. Um, whether you are or not, you need to read this book. This book is incredible. Um, it's actually geared towards kids. So, so if you're like me and you're not like the, the brightest crane in the box, you can kind of pick it up and dive right in and you're, gonna, you're not going to feel left behind. It's a good, but it's, it's, a, it's a series called the Wingfeather Saga, right? And so uh, it's this incredible story about these three kids that um, they find out they're not just these like ordinary kids. They kind of have this like much greater purpose. And, and uh, I don't want to give too many of the spoilers away. Um, but the main antagonist in this story, his name is Nag the Nameless, right? And uh, as this result, though, of like a, like a childhood trauma, uh, Nag decided that if he were the most powerful being, like he wouldn't experience any pain, right? And so he kind of began this quest for power, um, and he wanted to try to inflict as much pain on everyone, everyone that like he, he felt hurt by. And so he did this by raising up this army that he called the Fangs of Dang, right? It's a, it's a kid's book, so kind of cheesy, but, but yeah, it's the Fangs of Dang. And, um, and these, this army were people that Nag melded with animals, right? So he had this, like, special stone, and he'd recite this incantation, and he'd take these people and turn them into, like, part person, part snake, or part person, part wolf. And uh, what we see is that as these people are melded into animal or with these animals, they forget about who they were. Right? They, they take on this new identity. These, they, they become these hateful, like, uh, you know, beings that are, like, evil and bent on destruction, you know. Um, and as the story goes on, we get, we get introduced to this other kind of colony called uh, the Cloven, right? And so Cloven, they were like these trial runs. So you have your, your fangs over here and you have these Cloven. And, and so as Nag was perfecting this melding craft, he had a bunch that didn't go so well. And all of these little uh, failed science projects formed a community called Clovenfast. And uh, these creatures, they were, they were all failed science projects, and, and they were all tormented. They were all crazy, they were all deformed, and, and they were in really rough shape. And so there was this one particular cloven that actually remembered who she was. She remembered her name. She remembered the story that she was a part of before the, before the melding, and her madness slowly started to fade, right? She started to become herself again. And so her drift into chaos and madness was gone, and she started being brought back to life, and she kind of felt like it was her, her duty to help do that for the other clovens, right? And so she started, she started to help these other clovens remember who they were, and they stopped drifting into crazy, right? But this, this, this uh, stop, this, this, this kind of brought back to lifeness, it didn't, it wasn't permanent. It didn't stick. The second that they forgot who they were, they started drifting off again, Right? And so whenever they're these clothing characters in the story, they'd recite and they'd re-recite their identity. There's one guy, he's like, I'm Cadwick, you know, the blacksmith of Penny Ridge. You know, and, it's, and as soon as he starts to drift off and starts going crazy, you hear him say, I'm Cadwick, the blacksmith of Penny Ridge. He's trying to bring himself back. He would recite his identity. He would recite the story that he's a part of. And, and the reason I kept thinking about this story as I was preparing is because this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing. Right? We already mentioned last week um, that the, the book of the Bible that we call Hebrews is actually a sermon. And it was written around 60 AD by an unknown pastor to a group of Roman Christians who were being persecuted, right? They hadn't hit the full extent of their persecution, but life was not easy as a follower of Jesus in this time. It wasn't easy for them. And so, so a lot of them decided that it would be better to just drift back into their old life, right? Instead of being a part of the people of God. I think it's easy for us to find ourselves in this place 
right? In the same place that this infant Roman church found themselves. And so, so maybe you're a person and, and you've left another faith, right? And maybe when you did, you lost deep friendships and, and your whole life began to look different. And not only was it different, it actually became more difficult, right? You, you started experiencing loneliness and you were kind of shunned by loved ones and experiencing these things that you've never felt before. And, and maybe your temptation is to drift back to the life that you were a part of before, right? Life is hard. And even if I don't think that that's true, I'm just gonna go back. It's like, like life's easier over there. The writer of Hebrews would say, no, don't drift away, right? Maybe you're a follower of Jesus. You've been a follower of Jesus for a little, a little while and, and uh, you know, the busyness of life piles up and all of a sudden it's, it's easier to, to stream church online instead of gather with the saints. And it's easier to pick up your phone and turn on the television instead of picking up your Bible, Right? And instead of running to, to Jesus as the source of your peace in the midst of the storm, you, you start to turn to other things, your, your computer, your phone, uh, substances, whatever it is, whatever that besetting sin is. The writer of Hebrews would say, no, brother and sister, don't drift away. Right? Remember, maybe maybe uh, you're a faithful follower of Jesus. You, you love the Lord, but, but as, as the hardships of life kind of pile up, you know, uh, your path group just isn't really cutting it, and you're kind of at the end of yourself, and you're just going, man, I always want to throw in the towel. Writer of Hebrews says, no, remember your great salvation, press on, don't give up, and don't drift away. That's the message of this, this section of Scripture. Right, all through section or chapter two of Hebrews, this is the warning that we're getting. And in the same way that the cloven were prevented from drifting into crazy by remembering their identity and remembering who we are, who they were, we can be prevented from drifting off by remembering our identity, remembering who we are. And so today we're going to look through chapter two and we're going to press into the great salvation that we've received from Christ. And as we do, we're going to uncover kind of three main truths. Right, we're going to look at the purpose for which we were created, where we are now, and how we can be brought back. We're going we're gonna to look at what we were created for, where we are now, and how we can be brought back. And we're going to see this by uh, looking what the Lord has to say in Hebrews chapter 2. And so, so if you have a copy of your scriptures with you, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Um, if you're using the blue Bibles, we're going to be on page 1103. It's a, a 1103, and we're going to start at verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 2, and we're just going to read all the way through, right? So 18 verses. And hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you cared for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting 
that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source. And this is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, the children, or I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brother in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. So the text starts with, uh, with a therefore, right? And so when you're, when you're starting to learn how to read your Bible, one of the first things that you always want to ask is, what's the therefore, therefore, right? You want to know what, what the writer was talking about before, what he's talking about now. And so in chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews is strongly making this argument that, that Jesus is superior to all the angels, right? That's, that's the, the message from verse 4 all the way through the rest of the chapter. And so therefore, since Jesus is greater than the angels, we need to pay close attention to his message, Right? Paying close attention to his message will help prevent us from drifting away. The writer of Hebrews is going, look, you guys, like, uh, before Jesus, if an angel communicated something, we listened, right? And, and if we disobeyed, there was judgment. They, they often, uh, uh, there was like a tradition within Judaism that believed that the law was actually mediated through angels, right? Or, or they would think back to Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened to those people when they didn't obey the word of the angels. And so he's saying, look, if we paid attention to the angel's message, how much more important is it for us to pay attention to the message Jesus has, right? This great message of salvation that, that was declared by God, attested to by the apostles, was validated by signs and miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's going, this is the message we are best not to neglect, right? This is the message that if we find ourselves drifting, we need to press into it. We need to recite it. We need to re-recite it. And so now in verses 5 through 18, this pastor is reminding people of this message of great salvation. And it's incredible because in these 13 verses, there's not a single imperative. There are no commands. The, the writer of Hebrews, this pastor, wants his people to just sit and soak in this message, right? He wants us to behold Jesus because we become like what we behold, right? As, as we behold Jesus and this message of salvation, our affections are stirred and, and, and we will be inspired to press in to our relationship with him. And so the first truth that he wants us to know as we're reading this is that humanity was created to find glory in their relationship with God. This is what we were created for. We were created for the glory that comes through our relationship with God. Look at what verses uh, 6 and 8 have to say. This is in the NIV. It actually says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, or the son of man that you cared for them? You made them a little lower than the angels, and you crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. This is a, this is a quote from Psalm 8, right, which was written by David. And so, so David's like sitting there. He's like thinking about humanity, thinking about, you know, the Genesis 1 and 2 narrative of creation, and he's just blown away. His mind is blown at God's amazing love and care for humanity. And so 
you know, he, he, he's like inspired to write this song, right? And, and David, uh, he knows what humanity is, right? When, when compared to God, humanity is utterly insignificant. David recognizes this, and yet God has still gifted humanity. He has gifted us with glory and honor. He's put humanity over his earthly creation. This word uh, glory, it comes from the Hebrew term kavod, right? In, in the New Testament, it's doxa. And it like literally means like, like fatness, right? Like you can think of like a, a sumo wrestler. He's very glorious. It's like something that's weighty, something that matters, something that has significance, right? And when God created people in his image, he created them for glory, all, all people are created in God's image. And this means that all people are created with, with intrinsic worth. It means that all people are worthy of dignity and respect. It means that all people's lives have value, right? And, and from, from womb to tomb and of every ethnicity, right? Because, because we're made in the image of God. And we are precious to him and we are loved by him. And so, so part of being created in God's image means that we get to be in relationship with God embedded into that reality, that reality that we can relate to God is a sense of glory, right? In Genesis, we, we see that God, the creator of the universe, was intimately involved in the lives of Adam and Eve. Genesis uses metaphors like, like God walking with them, like a metaphor of like, like God breathing into the nostrils of humanity. That's a close and intimate relationship. That's a relationship of proximity, God was their friend, right? And they found significance in knowing and being known by God. They were given honor, the honor of being a reflection of God in this world. And I don't know if you can think about this, but um, imagine the beauty and the magnificence that would come from being in that kind of proximity to our Trinitarian God, right? We think about Moses in, in Exodus 34. He goes up on the mountain, he receives the law, he comes back down, his face is beaming, right? He's just glowing, from being that close to God. We're actually going to talk more about him next week. But now, now imagine the glory that, that would radiate from a human being without sin, right, with no barriers between them and God. Like Adam and Eve must have been radiant. And, and, and this is the glory that we are meant for. I love what Martin Luther says. Uh, so he, he says, before Adam sinned, right, his intellect was the clearest, his memory was the best, and his will was the most straightforward all in the most beautiful tranquility of mind without any fear of death and without any anxiety, to these inner qualities came also the most beautiful and superb qualities of body, qualities in which he surpassed all the remaining living creatures. I'm fully convinced that before Adam's sin, his eyes were so sharp and clear they surpassed those of the lynx and the eagle. He was stronger than the lions and the bears, whose, great str whose strength is very great, and yet he handled them the way we handle puppies. Right? I listen to Luther's description. I think, yes, like, that's a glorious person, right? That's the type of person we pay money to go watch in Marvel movies, right? We go, you are significant, Iron Man. Like, that is a glorious person, right? It's a weighty person. And, and, and we were created to experience that level of significance in our relationship with God. That was our purpose. And I love how, how J.R. Vassar, he puts it, he's uh, the partner of the church, uh, church of the Cross, the, or the pastor of our partner church, Church of the Cross in Grapevine. Um, he, he wrote a book called Glory Hunger, super influential. And honestly, like a lot of my thinking on this uh, subject comes from his, you know, multiple years of discipleship. But in, in the book, he, he, he writes, in the garden, God bestowed glory upon Adam and Eve in spite of all of the beauty 
and wonder put on display in the heavens, God's attention is riveted on the man and his wife. He sets honor upon them, giving them an intimate place of prominence and purpose and voicing his affirmation over their life. Humanity is special to God. His attention is riveted on people, right? Glory, significance, weightiness. It ultimately comes from the approval of God. And that is the life that leads to eternal life. This, this glory, this is the glory that we were meant for. Humanity was intended for glory and weightiness and significance, but it only comes through our relationship and proximity to God, right? I don't know if you remember those like uh, glow-in-the-dark stars that we had when we were kids. Man, when I was a kid, I was like nuts about space and solar systems and all this stuff, and so my whole, my whole room was just like filled with those types of things, you know? And I totally forgot about them, but Monica and I, we recently moved into this uh, home in Farmington, and we're staying in a room where I, I think it was like a, a kid's room, uh, because as soon as the lights went out, it was like... You know, like, it was just lit up, you know. And, and, and I think that our glory is like that, right? Like, like, these little pieces of plastic are completely and utterly insignificant on their own. They do nothing, right? But you put that star, that little star, in the glory of the sun, and all of a sudden, this little insignificant, worthless piece of plastic becomes a vast solar system on a nine-year-old's bedroom, Right? This is the, the glory that we were meant for. We, 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 in our proximity to God, we, we radiate his glory through us. But, but Adam, our, our, perp, our, our representative, right, our first representative before God, he decided that he wanted a glory outside of his relationship with God. This, and, and this kind of brings us to the next truth that we see emerging in this text that will help us to be prevented from drifting, right? The first truth is that humanity was created to find their glory in their relationship with God, but the second truth that we see emerging is that humanity has fallen from glory and is bound in slavery to death and the devil. We were created to be in relationship with God, and we found glory in that. But we have fallen from glory. We've come under the power of death and the devil. And so instead of submitting to God and being glorified in him, our first parents decided that they wanted to be their own boss. They wanted to be their own standard setters. They wanted to find glory in themselves, and they rebelled against God. And, and we all do this, right? And so, so, so Adam and Eve, they obeyed Satan in the form of a serpent, and the image of God in them was marred. The, the glory bestowed upon them was dimmed, right? And, and the authority and the dominion entrusted to them was, was surrendered to Satan. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in verse 8. He says, now putting everything in subjection to them, referring to humanity, Adam and Eve, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. At the fall, humanity's authority was surrendered, right? And we were left with this glory vacuum, right? An absence of glory, an absence of significance, an absence of purpose. And all of us are in that same boat as Adam. In our sin, we lost the glory that we were created to have. And we've become slaves. We've become, we've found under the power of the devil and death. And we kind of see that coming out of verses 14 and 15. Because glory ultimately comes from the approval and affirmation of God. And that leads to eternal life. But in our sins, we've brought on God's condemnation, right? And that leads to an eternal death. We lost the glory that, that comes from being in relationship with God. And yet, we still have this desire for glory. We, we, we are hungry for it. We are glory-hungry people, as J.R. would say. Right? We're born spiritually dead under the dominion of the devil and destined for death and destruction. And all along that way... The devil wants to enslave us with the same deception that he used on Adam and Eve. 
right? He knows that we were created for glory. He knows that's what our purpose is for. And so he, he, he's fearful because he knows that we can only find that in God. And so, so he tries to whisper these lies to us to keep us from pressing into that relationship with him, right? He says, he says you know what? You, you, you need to go out and achieve what you were meant to receive, Right? This, is, this is the lie that we believe. We believe that we can achieve glory from others when we were meant to receive it from God. And so we work and we strive and we resort to image management right? so that others will think we matter, so that others will think that we're significant, so that they'll think that we're worth something. You know, Jesus calls the same, this same behavior out in the Pharisees. And in John 5, he literally says that the Pharisees cannot believe in him because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And every single one of us senses this desire for glory. We might not call it that, right? That's, that's, that's haughty, that's proud. We wouldn't call it that. We maybe call it significance, call it importance. Maybe we'll call it legacy, right? We want to be a person of legacy. We want to be esteemed. We want to be well thought of. We don't want people to mock us or laugh at us. We don't want to be picked last. You know, we want to, we want to be perceived as impressive. We want to be affirmed by others. We, we crave that. And what we're craving is, is the glory that we lost in the garden. So what do we do, right? We search for our significance in ourselves. The devil, the Satan's deception, he comes up and he whispers this. He goes, I know you have a glory vacuum. Fill that hole with work, right? Work really hard. Be the best employee that you can be. And when you do, people will value you. They will say that you matter. They will affirm you. Right? Or, or I'll say, hey, find your glory in being an influ influencer. Right? Work really hard, gain a social media presence, manage that image, and you'll be admired. People will love you. Right? Or, or maybe our family. Right? They'll say, find glory in your children. Let them ascribe glory to you. Uh, put on the perception of perfection so that your kids will think you're important. Right? Or, or work so hard to have the perfect family that everyone else around you goes, man, they've got it together. They're a great family. I, I think they matter. I think one of the most sinister tricks that, that Satan plays is, is be a good person. Follow your religion well, right? Work hard. If you're a good person and do all these things that your religion says that you have to do, nobody will have anything to say against you, right? You'll find glory in that. But are you practicing your religion well because you love Jesus or because you want to be admired for loving Jesus, right? As fallen humans, we grasp at that glory that we are meant to have in, in Christ, and, and we go after lesser things, things that, that will ultimately lead to pain, right? That because, because they're unable to meet our needs. Our job is not secure enough to be our source of glory. We're, if we're honest, we're not good enough to find veneration in our good works. Our families will break apart under the pressure of striving for perfection, right? Families were not meant to bear up under the weight of being our source of significance. They're not built for that. God didn't create them for that. And so trying to enforce perfection upon them will shatter your family, right? The affirmation that we feel when, when, when we work so hard to have this social media influence or this presence or this, this look, right? It goes away as soon as we start to age or we start to fall out of shape, right? It's not, it's not secure enough. The desire to be, to be popular, to be well-liked, it's not a childish condition. This is a human condition, right? We all desire to be insiders. We want our significance, and we want acceptance. C.S. Lewis, he talks about this in this book, or an essay, actually. It's called um, 
what is it called? The inner ring, right? And so he talks about how we'll all complain about having to go into work on Saturday uh, and, and had to work on this extra project that we've brought, been brought into. And he'll say, um, it's, a, it's a terrible bore to give up your time in order to be in on this extra project. But what a more terrible outcome it would be if you were left out. And then Lewis says, it's a tiring it is tiring and unhealthy to lose your Saturday afternoon, but to have them free because you don't matter, that is much worse. The fear that I don't matter is one of the deepest fears that all people have. And it's a fear that came from losing the significance that we were created for. And so we do all sorts of things to try to prove to people that we matter. We try to find glory in the admirations of others, and that leaves us enslaved to their opinions, right? I remember when I was in high school, I was, like, you know, on the football team or whatever, and, like, it was kind of cool in my high school. We were weird, but it was kind of cool to be, like, a redneck, and so, like, we all had, like, camouflage hats, and we drew, drove trucks and spit tobacco and all this stuff, and, and so I remember that uh, one morning I was waking up really early to go hunting with, with my friends, and, and it was, like, I was exhausted. I was tired. I was up late the night before. I get into this cold and, like, uncomfortable truck, and we drive for hours out into the middle of nowhere where it's also cold and wet and dreary, and, like, like maybe a couple hours into this trip as I'm cleaning this bird and I've got like blood and guts all over my hands and it smells terrible. I'm like sitting here thinking like, what the heck am I doing? I don't even like hunting. Like I don't enjoy this. This isn't fun for me, you know? And so so here I am cold and miserable and smelling like an outhouse all because I wanted to be accepted by my friends. I wanted to be in. I wanted to matter to them. Are there choices that you're making right now, things that you are doing or groups that you're a part of that you know aren't good for you. You know you don't enjoy them, but you're still there. Many of the poor choices I've made in life have come from a desire to be included. And when our desire for significance from others hits its peak, we will refuse to confess Jesus as Lord. We will, we will refuse to live a life that's pleasing to him because that's not what's acceptable out here. This is, and we end up drifting off, right? This is what was happening in, in, even in Jesus' time. Uh, in John 12, uh, Jesus is talking, and it's uh, verses 42 and 43. He says, many even among the leaders believed in him, being Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Is that where you are? Are you refusing to follow Jesus because you love human praise more than the praise of God? That's a scary place to be right? And that's exactly where, where Satan wants us to be. He wants you to remain enslaved to him and, and destined for death, and he uses the court of human approval to keep you there. And so these people in John's gospel, they believed in Jesus, but they were afraid that they would be rejected. And so because they desired glory that came from people, they did not follow Jesus. And I wonder if that's where you are today. Are you not following Jesus even though Deep down, you actually believe, right? But because you're worried about what others think, you're going, no, nah, it's not for me. Or are, are you a follower of Jesus seeking glory in other things and find yourself drifting off? Because if we are apart from God, our life is a walking death, right? We, we come under the rule of Satan. We, come under, we become enslaved to sin, which will ultimately lead to a perpetual death and an eternity permanently separated from God and his glory and his goodness. And it will be a permanent life of torment and loneliness and despair and insignificance. And so if you are seeking your, your significance now from the acceptance of others, you are losing it for eternity. 
don't drift away, right? That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, don't drift away. Jesus is better than a life of trying to please people. Finding your significance in Christ is better than finding significance in what people think about you. So he's just saying, what do we do? Right? Like, if, if we can do nothing to fill the glory vacuum that we have, and there's nothing in creation that can satisfy our glory hunger, what do we do? How are we brought back to glory? How are we brought back to significance? And this is the third truth that I want us to take away, by far the most important, right? If you're writing one thing down, this is it. It's we can be brought back to glory by faith in Jesus' atoning death on the cross. We can be brought back to glory by faith in Jesus' atoning death on the cross. It's through Jesus' death on the cross that our sense of significance can be restored. And we actually see this coming out of verses 9 and 10. Right, right, after, right after the writer of Hebrews is saying that things are not the way they're supposed to be, he points us to the one who can make things right. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Then in verses 14 through 18, the, the pastor, this writer of Hebrews, tells us how this happens, right? He, Jesus took on flesh. He became a human, and he died for us in our place. And so, so if, if we're recapping everything that we've gone over before, uh, so far, we remember that our first representative, Adam, was created for glory. Right? He was crowned, crowned with glory and honor, given dominion over all of God's creation. And then in Genesis 3, Adam falls. And that, that glory is broken. He rebelled against God. He marred the image of God. The relationship is broken. And, and this broken image, this, this sinful nature, it was passed on to us. And so now we all enter into life at odds with God. Our relationship with him is broken. And so we work to achieve what we were intended to receive. And so to make things right, God came down. The second person of the Trinity condescended into human form. He took on flesh. He was human. And he was the human that we were supposed to be. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He glorified the Father. And he found his glory in the Father. We see this in Jesus' prayer in John 17. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus glorified God with his life, and he received the glory that Adam was supposed to receive. Jesus is the better Adam, right? Where Adam failed, Jesus fulfilled. Jesus lived a life that was pointed upwards towards the Father. He didn't glorify himself, and the Father's attention was riveted on Jesus, right? Jesus had the affirmation and the approval of God. The Father glorified the Son, and Jesus' ultimate glory was realized when he defeated sin and death on the cross. We see in Romans, right, that, that we were, we've all fallen from the glory of God, and, and, and that fallenness, that sin, is, the wage of that is death, God is just, and the just and right punishment for treason or rebellion against him is death. 
But God is gracious and God is merciful. So God decided that he would take that death in our place. But there's a problem, right? Because God can't die. God cannot die. Humans can die. God cannot die. So, so what did God do? God became flesh. Right? We believe in a, a Trinitarian God. And the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, he became a human. He was born of a child for the sole purpose of being the propitiation for our sins. And the Bible teaches that, that when, when God became human, he was fully God and he was fully man. He had two natures always. He was always fully both. Right? There was never a time when Jesus wasn't God, and there was never a time when Jesus was not man. And so as a man, he lived the perfect life, the life that Adam was intended to live. And then he died and paid the price for our sins. He was the perfect sacrifice that our sin required. And yet, being fully God, his sacrifice was sufficient to atone for all of the sins of all of the people of the entire world who, past, present, and future, would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved while they're living. This is the great message of salvation, right? Jesus did all the work. He did it all. The only thing that we contribute to this message of salvation is our sin. That's it. We come with our brokenness, and Jesus does all the work of restoration. He is the propitiation for our sins. And I love this word, propitiation. It's, it's from the Greek word, hilasterion. It's one of my favorite words in the Bible because it has this like, kind of dual meaning, right? And in one sense, propitiation means that, that Christ um, expiated our sins. He, he purified them. We were left clean and spotless before God. But it also means that, that all of God's wrath was poured out on Christ when he was on the cross, right? So if you have trusted in Jesus, God is not mad at you. His just and righteous anger towards your sin and your rebellion has been pacified in Christ. Just let, let that sink in, right? If you've trusted in Jesus, God is not angry with you. He's not angry about the sin you committed yesterday. He is not angry about the sin you're going to commit this afternoon. Your salvation and his pleasure is eternally secured in the person of Christ. Eternally. His wrath has been pacified, and God's attention is riveted on you. He speaks his affirmation and approval over your life. In our text, we actually see who we are in Christ. Right? We become God's children, co-heirs with Christ. And we see this in verses 10 through 13, that Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Right? And this, this isn't genetically. Like, we, don't, we don't trust in Jesus and get like, magically transformed into Israeli Jews and you know, share the same DNA as Jesus. This is, this is legally. Right? We become adopted into the family of God. Jesus becomes our adopted brother, and all of the blessings that God the Father extends towards the Son in eternity, we become co-heirs of. It's beautiful. And so in that, we find our glory through Christ, right? In our relationship with God, once again, we become the ultimate insiders. There's no position in the entire universe that is greater than daughter or son of God. Nothing. CEO doesn't outrank that. Instagram influencer doesn't outrank that. There's literally no way to be more significant than to be the son or daughter of God. It brings us in. I remember uh, just recently, um, I got to hang out with Phil Johnson. I don't know if you guys know him. He's a part of this church. He actually gave me permission to share this story, but, uh, but he's an incredible human being. He's remarkable. Um, and I don't know if you know this about him, but he's actually a, he's a pilot in the Air Force. 
And so in, in our world of like 7.6 billion people, and then throughout the whole history of human existence, Phil is one of 112 people who's logged um, over 1,000 hours in the F-22 fighter pilot. It's like the most elite plane in the world right now. He's one of 112. And so I remember when he was like logging this last hour, um, there were a few of us that got an opportunity to kind of see that, like this, like witness this, this last hour. And so I remember as he was touching down, um, we were with like, a few military guys, and there are these all these kind of like um, upper level like executive types from from Lockheed Martin. They're the ones who build the plane. And one of these executives goes, "Man, I hope you consider yourself really lucky." I was like, "I mean, I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, what do you mean?" He goes, "Man, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who work for Lockheed Martin, and vast amounts more in the Air Force that work their entire life to be this close to this airplane. This is the most elite airplane in the world, and they work their whole life, and they never even get to see one in person." And here you are, past the guards, past the security clearance, past the barbed wire, and you're looking at this plane from a few feet away, and it's all because of Phil, right? It was no work that I did. Phil did all the work, and he brought me into this glory of being a part of that plane, being, being a part of this moment. And isn't that what our relationship with Jesus is like, right? People all over the world spend their whole life searching for meaning and significance. And if you're in Christ, you have it. Right? God has approved of you. He has uh, spoken his affirmation over you. So many people spend their whole life working for the approval of others. But if you're in Christ, you've been given access to the most important position in eternity. In Christ, we are accepted by God. God has rendered his verdict, and his verdict is, I love you. I accept you. And if you're accepted by others, or if you're accepted by God, others' opinions don't matter. Right? It's like, like if I get charged with a crime here at a Utah state level and I appeal to the federal court and the federal court says innocent, the opinion of the lesser court doesn't matter. Right? In the same way, the court of human approval succumbs to the, the verdict that God has rendered over you, that God has pronounced over you, loved and accepted. You don't have to be a people pleaser. Right? If you are a person who has repented of seeking the glory from yourself apart from God, if, you, if you're a person who's dying to the desire that, that comes from approving people, if you've reoriented your heart towards glorifying God and others and, and trusted in Christ, you can have the significance that comes from God and you don't have to achieve anymore. You can rest in his verdict over your life. God has brought many sons and daughters back to glory through the death of Jesus. And I love what St. Basil says, Basil the Great. I'll tell you all about him if I have more time, but he's an incredible human being also. Um, he, he wrote this like, you know, 1,800 years ago. He said, man ought to have abided in the glory he possessed from God. Indeed, he would have possessed an, and, um, an exaltation that was genuine rather than false, being magnified by God's power, made illustrious by divine wisdom, gladdened by everlasting life and its blessing, but since he set aside the desire for divine glory, looking for something better and striving for what he could not attain, he lost what he could possess. And so the greatest salvation for him, both the remedy of his illness and the road back to his original state is Christ. Not imagining that the ornament of glory is attained through himself, but seeking it instead from God. We were created to find our worth and our significance in our relationship with God. We lost that glory, and there's nothing that we can do to get it back. But Jesus came, right? He tasted death for us, and in him, significance can be restored. That's why the writer of Hebrews wants us to remember our identity. 
He wants us to press into that. It's like in the same way that the clothing are kept sane by reciting and re-reciting, and they're prevented from drift away from by reciting and re-reciting. We too, when we find ourselves in the place where we're seeking approval from others and we're, we're trying to work and strive to please people instead of God, we can remind ourselves, I've trusted in Jesus. I am accepted by God and his opinion is the only one that matters. If you have trusted in Christ, you've been adopted into the family of God. There's no greater position and so rest in that. And if, if you have not trusted in Jesus, do it now. Confess your affirmation of, of Jesus' deity and his death and resurrection and, and your need for forgiveness and trust in Christ and receive the significance that you are meant to have, right? Because we are all created with this glory hunger and this glory vacuum, and there's nothing that we can do to get it back. So we need Jesus. To that end, please bow your heads with me. Father, we're thankful that you love us. We're thankful that you care for us. We're thankful that, that in your love, you sent your son to die in our place and that in him, our relationship to you can be restored. What a privilege that is, what an honor that is. And, and, and we're thankful for it, God. We don't take it for granted. We ask that for, for those in this room who know you, by your grace, you would give them uh, the ability to press in to that great message of salvation, God. And for those here who don't know you, we pray that, that you would uh, impress upon them your great love for them and that you would call them to repentance. We worship you, God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.